Good afternoon. It's good to see all of you. Uh, my name is Jesse. I haven't been up here in a little while, so if you don't know who I am or if you're new or visiting, uh, I'm Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here. We want to welcome you to Zoe Community Church. We're glad you're here. Um, let me just kind of explain what's going to be happening today and for the rest of the month. For the month of December, uh, we're going to be taking a break from kind of our usual programming. We've been preaching through the book of Second Samuel, kind of expositing through it, just going through every chapter, every verse. Uh, but for the month of December, we're going to take a break from that, and we're going to be focusing on Advent. Now, the word Advent uh, basically means arrival. Okay, so when we talk about Advent, we're talking about the arrival of Jesus Christ into our world, the birth of the Son of God. Now, for the past 1,500 years or so, about uh, at least, the church has celebrated this season kind of leading up to the end of December as Advent season, as we kind of get ready for what we call Christmas. Now, I get this question a fair bit around this time of year, so I'm going to address it today, and then I'm not going to talk about it again. Eric's coming back from vacation on Wednesday, so you can talk to him about it. Uh, but the reason why I'm bringing this up is a lot of people ask me, or at least it happens regularly, should we even celebrate Christmas at all? And I know some of you are thinking, what? Right? We're supposed to fight for the Christ in Christmas. Well, the reason why some people bring this up is because they've done their research, and some of you know this, okay? Maybe you've read about it, talked about it, watched the YouTube video. Uh, but what people discover a lot of times is that there was a Roman holiday known as Saturnalia that the Romans and the Roman Empire celebrated. And it took place at the end of December, right around December 25th. And it was dedicated to the worship of Saturn, not the planet, but the god that the planet was named after, okay, Saturn. And this holiday was dedicated to this pagan god. It was a pagan holiday, so they did pagan things. It was very un-Christian, non-Christian. Now, toward the end of December, they would celebrate this every year. Some of the things we associate with Christmas today actually uh, are very similar to what they did with Saturnalia. So maybe the biggest thing is gift-giving. That's part of Saturnalia. That was kind of the thing. And we give gifts now. So what happens is Christians, they go online and they read a blog or they listen to a podcast and they're like, wait a minute, did we just get influenced? Did we just get inceptioned by Saturnalia? And now we're just doing this pagan thing and we didn't even realize it. The question is, should Christians actually celebrate this if it has maybe possible roots in a pagan festival? Are we accidentally doing something that's fundamentally dishonoring to God? Were Christians just trying to accommodate kind of an unchristian, pagan, kind of other God's world uh, by covering up, you know, these pagan festivals with a Christian veneer, kind of slapping Christ on top of it and, and just trying to do something that was similar? This can mess with our, with our minds. In fact, some of you did, had no idea, and now you are all messed up. You're going like, to look it up on your phone. I mean, imagine if you're the kind of person who has always bemoaned the fact right, that Christmas is losing the Christ. And now you're like, wait a minute, have I been bemoaning the fact that Saturnalia is losing the Saturn? Like, what is going on? So never mind about Advent. We're just going to second Samuel. Let's get into it. No, I'm just kidding. Look, the rabbit hole can go deep. Okay, it can go deep. Um, but at the end of it, okay, here's what you'll learn, and I'm going to try to save you the time. Feel free to research on your own if you want. But first of all, Saturnalia, yes, it did take place around the same time as when we celebrate Christmas now, 
But there are distinct Christian reasons why we celebrate Christmas when we do. In fact, even though we don't know exactly why or when uh, Jesus was born, uh, the reason why we celebrate actually has a lot to do with how the early church, the church fathers, thought through the calendar. See, the tradition around that time, even though nothing was written down in Scripture, the tradition that had been passed down through the centuries was that Jesus had been conceived, that he had been, uh, that Mary had been visited uh, by the Holy Spirit. The angel had appeared to her on March 25th, right around the end of March. So if you do the math, right, if you understand a little bit about how pregnancy works, then nine months later, it's December 25th. So there was a Christian reason why they were thinking that. Now, we don't know exactly when the date was, but at least you understand the reasoning. That's why they thought about things that way. And then, too, along these lines, just because Christians had their own celebration right around the same time as the Roman Saturnalia doesn't mean that they copied it. Okay, gift-giving in of itself is not a pagan ritual or anything like that. It's something that a lot of people do. A lot of people did for various reasons. So there's a difference between saying that Christians were trying to, you know, Christianize pagan things and kind of accommodating, uh, you know, things that might have been bad in some ways versus trying to do something distinctly Christian on your own as maybe an alternative or even just trying to do something separate completely. And really, all of this is a moot point if you truly grasp what the Bible says about things like this. So the reason I'm bringing this up isn't to stumble you, but hopefully that you would be able to think through things a little bit more biblically, because I get this question at Christmas, I get this question at Easter. Romans 14, James mentioned it uh, last week a little bit. Listen to what Paul says about kind of controversial things like this. He says in Romans 14, 5, and 6, he says, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Now, what he's saying is some people like to celebrate certain days. Other people feel like, what's the point in doing that? The issue he is getting at isn't the day. He doesn't say, well, look, these are the approved days that you must celebrate. These aren't the days. He said it's actually a deeper issue. It's about the heart. It's the heart behind why you want to celebrate a day or not. If you celebrate in honor of the Lord, it's good. If you choose to abstain in honor of the Lord, that's good too. It depends on whether or not you're trying to honor the Lord. It has to do with your conviction. So, Christmas. It's not so much, should we celebrate it or not? It's why we even think about this in the first place. Like, if we are celebrating this day, and we recognize that we don't know exactly what day Jesus was born, but we want to proclaim the birth of Christ. We want to talk about what it means that Jesus, the Son of God, was incarnated into the world then praise God. And at the same time, if Christmas is all about consumerism and all the things that I want to get, if it's just about even more superficial things, like you just happen to like the season, which is not a sin in of itself, at the very least, you got to check your heart. Right? Christmas that is only thinly kind of wrapped in a Christian veneer, that's not really honoring to Christ. So if we can just get to the heart of it, okay, then it's good. So we're going to do an Advent series. Hopefully we can focus on Jesus. And hopefully we don't focus on all the extraneous things, as fun as they are. Rudolph. I don't know. Is that a sign or something? Rudolph or chestnuts or whatever, Mariah Carey. We're going to focus on Jesus. 
And our hope is to use this season, especially the season in America where you can turn on the radio, any station, and there are doctrinally rich, theologically sound songs talking about the incarnation. Hopefully, as Christians, we can spend this time really focusing on who Jesus is. So all that being said, Advent series, if you have more questions, I'm not even joking. You can talk to Eric when he comes back. He loves talking about that kind of stuff. I only like talking about it, so you want to talk to him. Here's what we're going to do for December. And Christmas actually falls on Sunday this year. But what we're going to do for the next four weeks, including today, is we're going to look at the significance of the birth of Jesus from the unique perspective of four people. Not me, okay? The four people we're talking about are named Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So we're going to look at the Christmas story, you could say, from each of the four gospel perspectives. And as we just sang, we're going to ask the question, what child is this? And we're going to let these four gospel writers inspired by the Holy Spirit answer that question. So that's our hope. The series is going to be called, What Child Is This? I think that's what I told Eric to make a little graphic of. And today we're going to start with Matthew, as you might expect. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the first page of the New Testament. Shouldn't be too hard to find. Matthew chapter 1. Matthew 1. And we're going to read from verse 1 to verse 17. And you might be a little scared when you see what I'm going to do. But we have to trust God here, okay? Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 to 17. I'm going to read this whole thing. Matthew 1, 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, verse 4, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Verse 12. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheltiel, and Sheltiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Atzor, and Atzor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of God. Will you pray with me? Father, there's so much to talk about. About the birth of your son. 
about the glorious doctrine of the incarnation, about the mystery that God, the Word, took on flesh and dwelt among us. God, we come to your Word today. We know that it is living and active, that it is sharper than any two-edged sword. We know that your Word is breathed out by you, that it is useful to train us up for every good work. And yet, Father, we come to your word this afternoon and we look at a list of names. We don't quite know what to make out of it, and yet we know that it has something for us, that you wanted us to have this. So, God, I pray that you would give us ears to hear what your word is preaching today. God, I pray that this list, this genealogy, God, would preach a powerful word to our hearts. And I pray that we would be changed. Most of all, God, I pray that you would reveal who your son is. He is everything that we need. He is our Lord and our Savior. Our lives should be about him. I pray that as we look at this text, that our hearts would be drawn to him. I pray that your spirit would help us. I pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. What do you know about your family history? What do you know about your descendant or your ancestors, excuse me, the people you were descended from? If you're like me, you probably don't know too much. Uh, maybe you know a little bit about, you know, your grandfather or grandmother, but maybe you do know, right? Maybe you did some kind of online ancestry thing. Maybe there's a famous person in your bloodline somewhere way back, or maybe, you, you know, you're from a small town and your family is kind of big. Right? So when people hear your last name, they're like, oh yeah, I remember your great-grandfather. This building is named after him, or your grandmother was such a big influence on our family, something like that. Maybe you wear that name with pride because it means something. Or maybe it's the opposite. There's a guy that I read about named Nick Flynn. His father was a criminal. The thing about Nick's father was he abandoned his family soon after Nick was born. And after this, he robbed this bank. So one of the first times that his kids actually saw him was on a wanted poster. There's a picture up of him because he was a criminal. And growing up, all Nick knew as the youngest kid, uh, all he knew about his dad was bad stuff. He was an alcoholic. He was a deadbeat. He was in prison. He was a bad guy and so on. Now, years later, when Nick was an adult, his dad got out of jail, and Nick ran into him a few times. He tried to visit him uh, once or twice. He tried to help him out when he needed some money. But they didn't have a relationship really at all until one day. Okay, one day, Nick, he's an adult now, but he's just riding his bike near the river in Boston, and he passes by a homeless man sleeping on a bench. And he does a double take because he realizes that homeless guy is his dad. Now, he doesn't stop, okay? He doesn't know his dad very well. He doesn't even like his dad very much, and he knows his dad has made a lot of bad choices. He feels bad, but he also feels like we don't even know each other. The problem was, as he was biking off, he thought to himself, what if this changes things? Because the thing, uh, the thing was, Nick worked at a homeless shelter. Okay, he actually cared a lot about helping homeless people. Now, you'd think that this would increase his compassion for his dad, but this actually increased his anxiety. In his stomach, he felt this stress. What if my dad shows up at the homeless shelter? What if I actually have to confront this man, the reality that this person is related to me? 
And about a month later, guess who showed up at the homeless shelter? His dad stormed into the place and he loudly announced to everyone and no one in particular that his son works here and I need a bed. I demand a bed. I need special treatment because my son works here. So Nick, who had held his father at arm's length all these years, sure, he was a bad guy, but he wasn't around. He didn't know him. But now all of a sudden, his coworkers are coming up to him and saying, Nick, this guy is here. He says that he's your dad. What should we do? And all these feelings he had managed to avoid his whole life became suddenly unavoidable. All these things he had kept bottled up inside, he had to start processing. Should he be angry at him for abandoning him? Should he want to help him out? Should he feel compassion for his flesh and blood? Should he feel ashamed of this man? Or should he expect to become just like him? There was a lot to think about. See, the truth is, even if we want to avoid it, we're defined by the family that we come from. Part of it is nature, part of it is nurture, but really, I think, in reality, it has more to do with affiliation and baggage. We live in the light of their victories. Oh, you're so-and-so, son? Oh, I remember the time that he did this, and it was so awesome. But at the same time, we also carry the baggage of their failures, all the things that they have accumulated in their own lives. You could even say that we live in the splash zone of their sins, And to a certain extent, at least, the shadow of our family name, it falls over all of us. And we start here with this idea because Matthew actually starts here. The first chapter of the New Testament starts here. Matthew talks about the birth of Christ, but he reminds us that Jesus was not like Adam. He wasn't formed from the dust of the ground. It wasn't a clean slate. Jesus was born into a family a family that we can actually read about in the pages of Holy Scripture in the Old Testament. He was born to two parents, Mary and Joseph, and he was born into a family line that includes a lot of names. Matthew begins with the genealogy, and let's just be honest right off the bat. Okay, I know some of you guys, when you looked at the first page, and when I said what verses we were going to read, and even as I read those verses, you were like, oh, man, come on, man, thanks for the Christmas gift. It's like I gave you some coal to start off. I mean, I read the whole thing. It doesn't exactly pop off the page. Some of these people, we have no idea who they are, much less how to say their names. You know, actually, Reader's Digest 40 years ago. They came up with an abridged Bible. I know it's a little blasphemous, maybe more than a little blasphemous, but they wanted to shorten the Bible and make it easier to read. Uh, So they took out all the difficult and uh, quote-unquote boring parts, and they took out almost every single genealogy. They're like, don't need that. And they definitely took out Matthew 1. I remember checking when, it, uh, when I read about it. They cut out this genealogy. And, you know, I'm not trying to hate on Reader's Digest too much. Even pastors don't want to preach this. I remember when we preached through Matthew, people were like, oh, we're, we're going to start with this? Like, what are you even going to say? And funny story, earlier this year, um, I was going to speak at a different church uh, to kind of try out for a new job. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, my friend is a pastor uh, at another church, and he said, hey, you know, if you're going to be in town, why don't you, you know, preach for us? That'd be awesome. And I, I was honored, right? I was like, oh, that's so gracious and nice of you. And then one of the other pastors who I didn't know, he emailed me, and he said, what are you going to preach on? And I said, I, I'm thinking about preaching from Matthew 1, the genealogy of Jesus. I was being serious, but my friend told the other pastors, he said, no way is he being serious. Jesse is a jokester. He's, he's trolling you. 
why would I troll this other pastor? And you guys know I'm really serious, right? Like I'm a serious guy. So it's very strange that he would say that. Um, but he said he's joking. So it got super awkward. They think I'm like trolling these pastors. They didn't even want me to speak anymore because I'm this like jokester who can't be serious about the Bible. I was serious. I wanted to preach from Matthew 1. Uh, turns out I ended up getting COVID and they, they, I didn't preach anyway. So God stopped me. But I was going to preach on Matthew 1. Okay, I was going to preach on Matthew 1, but it was telling that my friend, who is a pastor, thought that why would anyone do this, right? Because it's a genealogy. But see, here's the thing. People think genealogies are boring and difficult because they're just a list of names. But I think that that's the wrong way to look at it. They aren't just a list of names. Okay, think about it, right? They're not just a list of names. They're a list of people. And here's here what we have is Jesus's, right, the most important person in a Christian's life. We have his family tree. This is the lineage that our Lord was born into. It's not just names, it's people, it's family. And if we're going to ask what child is this, we have to remember the truth is, even if we want to avoid it, that people, that we are defined by the family we come from. And God chose this family for Jesus to be born into. Look, when we talk about Christmas, when we talk about the birth of Christ, we don't just talk about how Jesus was born into a manger. We talk about how Jesus was born into this family. He was born in the light of their victories, and he was also born with the baggage of their failures, so to speak. And I'm telling you, this genealogy and these people, they tell us so much. They preach a powerful word. So let's get into it. Let's get into it. Three points from this genealogy. Only three things. Okay, there's a lot actually in here. We're only going to talk about three major things. First, the females. Second, the failures. Third, the 14s. Okay, all Fs. So first, the females. I know some of you are like, ew, like why'd you even go that way? I needed all words that started with an F. You can call it the women or the outsiders. There are four women included or mentioned in this first section, okay? So the genealogy is split into three sections in the first section. So each point's going to be from each section. But in the first section, we see that there are four women specifically included. And their inclusion lets us know right away that with Jesus, it's not about appearances. It's not about appearances. Look at the first section again. Let me explain. Certain names jump out, right? If you look at verse 2, you see Abraham, you see Isaac, you see Jacob. They are the founders of the nation of Israel. They are heroes of the Old Testament. In fact, it looks like it's going to start off as a who's who of people that you learn about in Sunday school as a kid if you grow up in church. And then you see in verse 5, you see Boaz. Verse 6, you see Jesse, the most important person in the Old Testament. Just kidding. Uh, he's not, a, my name's Jesse, by the way. He's not that important at all. Okay, let's just be real. He's not important except for the fact that his youngest son, David, is super important. Verse 6, he was the king. Okay, the king as far as Israel is concerned. He was the king chosen by God to lead his people. And if that's all that we focus on here, we think, oh, Jesus is an important person. The first section of the genealogy sets Jesus up as another who's who candidate, someone who is very, very important. And while that's true to a certain extent, notice verse 3, the mention of Tamar. And then verse 5, Rahab and Ruth. And then the second half of verse 6, and David was the father of Solomon by 
the wife of Uriah. And if you've been with us at Zoe, as we've gone through 2 Samuel, you know who Matthew is talking about. It's Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. Four women are included in this section of the genealogy. And you might think, what's the big deal? Why am I focusing on that? Why are they important? Why uh, am I making the whole point about them? Well, it's a big deal because in Jewish genealogies, if you're going to stick with just the basics of how they worked, you would just go from father to son. The family name would be passed down from father to son, father to son. Many cultures traditionally are the same. The family name goes from male to male. And you see this in most genealogies, even in the Bible. This guy was the son of this guy, who was the son of that guy. You get the gist. You don't need to add any mothers or daughters or sisters. You don't have to do it, okay, to get the information across. So deciding to do so by Matthew, it should stand out. I mean, one of the things about genealogies that makes them so boring, quote-unquote, is that they're monotonous. But Matthew mixes it up a little bit right away. There are four mothers that are added here. Now, if he added every mother, that would say one thing, right? That he cares about the mother side of the family. That matters a lot. I mean, biologically speaking, I would say mothers are more important to a family than a father in a lot of ways. They actually carry the baby. Mothers here are saying amen in their hearts. But he doesn't add all mothers. Okay, not saying that that isn't important, but he adds four, particularly. And it's not the four you might expect if you know your Old Testament. There were four women, count them, who were directly involved in the building of the nation of Israel. First, there's Sarah, right? Sarah, the wife of Abraham. She bore the miracle baby Isaac, who carried the promise. And then Isaac's wife, Rebecca, bore Jacob and Esau, twins. And then God chose Jacob. And Jacob had two wives, Rachel and Leah. And through them came all the tribes of Israel. These are the four matriarchs of the nation, but none of them are mentioned. Instead, we have Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Matthew wants to highlight these four women in particular. Why? Well, first of all, you got to know who these women are. Right? Who is Tamar? She might be the least well-known of these four. Tamar bore twins to Judah. That's what it says in this list. Perez and, uh, excuse me, let me find, and Zerah. Perez and Zerah. And Judah, Judah's family grew to be maybe the greatest tribe in all of Israel. So at first you're like, okay, makes sense, right? It's just the mother of Judah's children. Except if you go back into the Old Testament, you go back to the book of Genesis, you read this story, Tamar wasn't Judah's wife. Tamar was actually Judah's daughter-in-law. Okay, so what happened was Tamar married Judah's son. Judah's son died. And the way that culture worked in those days was if you have a younger brother, he would marry your widow, okay, if, you, if it can happen. To kind of take care of the family, it was hard for widows to live on their own. So it was a way to kind of take care of the family, help your brother's family out. So what happened was Tamar's husband died. Tamar married uh, his brother, and then he died too. So it was Judah's responsibility as the father-in-law to take care of her, but he didn't want to do it. So what Tamar did was she tricked Judah into sleeping with her. She got pregnant. He didn't know it was her. And when she was found to be pregnant, he was going to punish her for adultery and bringing scandal and shame to the family. But then she revealed what happened. He discovered that it was actually him who was the father, some kind of Maori thing. 
And of course, he was just as guilty of adultery as she was. And so caught in his hypocrisy, he relented and they raised these children. Crazy story. It's in the Bible. From the scandalous coupling comes Perez, who is Jesus' forefather. That's the first woman who is mentioned. And then what about Rahab? You might know Rahab. She was from a city named Jericho. It was, it was an enemy city in Canaan. It had an impenetrable wall around it. And Joshua, the leader of Israel, sent two spies to scout it out. And they were on the run. Rahab helped them. She hid them. And then afterwards, she was rewarded with her life. She joined the people of Israel. But what scripture was also clear about, besides what she did, was what she used to do. It says that she was a harlot or a prostitute. Yes, she did a heroic thing, but she was also a former enemy of Israel. She was also not an Israelite at all, which would have been kind of weird to highlight in the genealogy of the Jewish Messiah. And she also had what we would call a past. I mean, people would think twice when they heard her background. And yeah, she eventually married into an Israelite family. But like Tamar, this inclusion makes you scratch your head a little bit. And then we have Ruth. Now we preach through Ruth uh, way back in the day in Zoe's history, before most of you were here. It's one of my favorite stories of all time. I wish I could do it again. Now with Ruth, there's no real scandal with her. In fact, she's presented in Scripture as a paragon of virtue. In Jewish tradition, she's seen as like the Proverbs 31 woman. I mean, she is it. She's a model of steadfast love and kindness. She's great. But in her day, when people encountered her, they weren't so positive. Because Ruth, like Rahab, was not an Israelite. She was a Moabite. And Jewish people, the Israelite people, did not like the Moabites for a couple of reasons. One, they had bad blood in their history. The Moabites had killed some Israelites when they were wandering in the wilderness. So there was some real bad blood. But then two, the history of the Moabites to the Jewish mind was disgusting. Right? The Moabites began as a people from an, an incestuous father-daughter relationship. They thought that they had been created in sin, in a sense, this nation. So Ruth, despite her personal virtue, was suspect to most because of where she was from. And then, of course, we have Uriah's wife at the end. It's, inter- it's interesting. Her name isn't even mentioned. I mean, what Matthew is doing is highlighting that she was Uriah's wife. That is not David's wife. The worst thing David ever did, sleeping with his loyal soldier's wife and then having this soldier killed off to hide it, that's what we're reminded of here, adultery and murder. So while David should be the highlight of the first section, right? David, the king, the man after God's own heart, instead what we're reminded of is the worst thing that he ever did. Now, Scripture never teaches that Bathsheba herself seduced David or anything like that. The details are clear. But her inclusion really puts uh, a bad light on the whole affair. This is who Matthew chooses to highlight. And the question we need to ask as we come to this genealogy, first of all, is why? Is there a reason? He didn't have to do it, so why did he do it? Well, if we think about it, all four of them, while they are different in their own ways, They all have something, as I mentioned, that in their day, in the eyes of the people around them, would be considered what we now call a scarlet letter. You guys ever read that book, The Scarlet Letter? I remember we read it in school. That's why I forgot everything about it. Thankfully, we have Wikipedia. The Scarlet Letter is a novel 
written in 1850, okay? So back in the day, and it's about a woman named Hester Prynne who lived in Puritan Boston. And what happened was she gave birth out of wedlock to a baby. No one knew who the father was, but because she wasn't married and she had a baby in Puritan Boston, this was a scandal. And what the townspeople decided to do was they would punish her. They decided to punish her by making her wear this red or scarlet letter A on her person at all times so that everyone would know that she was an adulteress, that she was a sinner. They wanted to make her stand out for what she did for the rest of her life. Now, not all of these women did something wrong, right? Ruth notably was known for her inner beauty and virtue, but still, she was a Moabite. And if you understand the context and the history, she wore that scarlet M. Not because of what she did, but because of where she was born. She wore that scarlet M everywhere she went. Rahab had a past. Tamar had twins with her father-in-law, Bathsheba. You know about what happened with her and David. People talk. People know. So if you're going to introduce the Savior of the world, you think maybe you might conveniently skip over these names. Not like you're covering it up, but you don't need to highlight it. And the crazy thing is, you technically could just skip over these things and kind of get to the parts that you do want to highlight. But Matthew disagrees. He actually wants to put the spotlight on them. And what Matthew is doing here is teaching us our first lesson about what child this is. He's saying, he's communicating, he's preaching through this list that through Jesus that through the Christ, God is bringing those whom others might look over or look down on, outsiders in the world's eyes, into his kingdom. What we have here really is the doctrine of God's grace. Jesus is not only the savior of those born into the right nation or born into the right family. He's not only the Messiah, those who have kept up moral appearances or haven't made any mistakes. He is the savior to anyone who would come to him. It doesn't matter what people think at the end of the day. It matters what God thinks. See, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, they remind us that the people who some people don't think could ever be included by God can be because God is in the business of grace. Now, I'm not saying everyone is saved. Don't get it twisted. But what we see here is that anyone could be. And we need to hear this at Christmas time. We need to hear it any time, but especially at Christmas when appearances threaten to take center stage. We dress up a little nicer or maybe the exact same way. Like there's so many guys wearing the exact same shirt as me. We dress up the kids. We dress up the church even. You could see it. The animals are all lined up, right? You know it wasn't realistically like that, right? But they're all like bowing down in a neat line. There's no waste products anywhere. And nothing wrong with any of that in of itself per se, okay? We don't want to have to buy little plastic pieces. We just have to understand and remember and keep on remembering that the family that Jesus was born into wasn't all clean cut. There was messiness, there was questions and scandals and scarlet letters. And we have to remember that Christianity isn't a religion for those who are good at looking like they have their lives together. See, I think that that's the temptation that we always face, but especially at Christmas. Let's just act a little bit better. Let's sweep our problems and our flaws and our struggles under the rug. Let's dress up, put a smile on our face, and when people ask us how it's going, we say, great, 
and fine, even though we're dying and falling apart inside. Christianity definitely doesn't only exist for people without scarlet letters. Christianity isn't just for people who don't have a past. Christianity isn't a religion on the outside. You see what I'm saying? And if you're new to church and if you wonder if Jesus is for you, and then you look around and everyone seems like they're fine and they're moral, they have no struggles, no problems at all, don't look at them. Look at the first section of this genealogy. Immortalized in Holy Scripture for all eternity are four names. And I'm not hating on these four women. Just the connotation that people in their day would have had. You see Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. God wanted them to be in the family of Jesus, even though many people probably wouldn't have wanted to talk about him. And Matthew wants us to never forget. And church, we have to be reminded too, as we begin this Advent season, that it's not about appearances. We're not here to pretend we're better than we are. We're not supposed to act like we were born totally sanctified. If you know the gospel, then you know that we all had our own scarlet letters. Our message isn't we're perfect. No, it's that we all had our scarlet letters. Our sins were as scarlet, but as Isaiah said, Jesus washed them white as snow. Not because of us, because of this child. So first, the females, these four women who were outsiders in their day, but chosen by God to be in the family of the Christ. Second, the failures. The failures. Look at verse 6 again. And Jesse, the father of David, the what? The king. The king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And it goes on, so on and so forth. David, the king. And each of these sons in the second section is a king. Imagine, you know, finding out there was someone famous in your bloodline that you were secretly royalty. How crazy is that? Imagine you're just a normal teenage girl and then you find out that you're the princess of Genovia. Crazy. The millennials get it. Jesus was born into a long line of kings, which means what? What does it mean? I mean, you know Lord of the Rings, right? If your ancestors are all kings, what does that make you? It makes you a king. Jesus is a king. But now we have two questions. One... If Jesus is a king, why, as we know from the Christmas story, is he born into a dingy stable? Why is he placed in a manger? I mean, he was born to a couple, a poor couple named Mary and Joseph. Joseph was not reigning on a throne. He was working in a wood shop, right? He was a carpenter. Last time I checked, kings didn't need to get a job to make a living. So what's going on? And then two, and this sort of answers the first, if this is all about kings and royalty, why am I calling this point the failures and not like the kings or the royals. Well, to answer the second question, because across the board, with a couple notable exceptions, these men were terrible kings. They failed. And their failures, their failures led to terrible suffering for God's people. Their people, God's people, paid the price. Look at the first real name of this section, Solomon. Solomon kicks it off, and the rise and fall of Solomon really encapsulates the story of these kings. So much potential on the one hand, and yet so much failure because of sin. Right? You know the story about Solomon. Just in a nutshell, this is what happened. He became king right after David. He had big shoes to fill, and God actually appeared to him and said, ask me for anything that you want. I'm going to help you out. And instead of asking for things that you might expect, right, luxuries and riches, no, Solomon says, I want wisdom. Would you give me wisdom? He humbly asks for help that he might be able to rule better. God is pleased. God gives him wisdom, supernatural wisdom, wisdom beyond anyone in the world at that time. And at first, everything is super good. 
He's wise. He's leading his people well. They enter into a phase of prosperity never seen before, never seen again. People are coming from all over the world to meet him. He builds a temple for God, and God's glory dwells there. But then what we see is Solomon, for all his wisdom, gets led astray by his own idolatrous heart. He marries 300 women. He has 700 concubines. He starts worshiping their gods. And he actually leads Israel astray to the point that the nation splits apart. I mean, how much worse could it get? How, how much worse of a leader could you be where your country that you're supposed to lead actually splits in two? And it only went downhill from there. We read of Uzziah starting off strong, but then growing full of himself. I mean, he becomes so arrogant that he tries to do these things that God expressly forbids. God strikes him with leprosy, and he has to live in a separate house because he's unclean the rest of his life, even though he's a king. Ahaz was bad. Manasseh was even worse. Now, like I said, there were a couple of decent kings. Hezekiah did his best. Josiah was actually good. That's why you see people named Josiah today, because he was actually good. But even his goodness highlights how bad everyone else was. You could go read about his reign. They find, they discover the Bible when he's the king, which is good, right? He finds it and he reads it. But what does that show? It shows that it was so lost, people hadn't been reading it at all, that they had to like excavate the Bible, right? No one was in the scripture. So this second section of the genealogy is all about the kingdom disintegrating and how it's these kings in the line of Jesus the king who directly caused its downfall. That's why Jesus is born in a manger, because there is no kingdom. Because if you look at verse 11, Josiah, for all his goodness, had a son who wasn't so good, Jeconiah. And it's with him that the kingdom of Israel, as an actual kingdom with a palace and a throne, ends. The nation is taken over by Babylon. Jeconiah is taken away to Babylon as a prisoner. And so to answer the first question, the reason why Joseph is working as a carpenter is because there is no Jewish king on the throne. They've been subject to other powers for centuries, all this time. I mean, Joseph has the blood of King David in his veins. And yet every day he has to wake up early and roll into work and make things with his hands. This is why Jesus isn't born into a palace. It's because his ancestors failed really bad. Going back to Nick and his father, Right, I was reading a little bit more about them. Nick, even though he was working at a homeless shelter, and it seemed like he had his life together, was actually kind of going down a bad path. He was drinking really heavily. He was into drugs. And his mom even talked to him and said, I feel like you're kind of becoming just like your dad, which was jarring for him to hear. You're kind of going down the same path of this guy that you didn't ever want to be like. And even when his dad showed up in his life years later, he was still deep into his addictions and vices. And I'm sure part of him wondered if he was destined to become just like his father. But more than that, I think what happened was, I mean, just think about the incongruity of the situation, how backwards and wrong it had become. Nick's dad abandoned the family, was a terrible example, didn't take care of Nick or help him at all. Nick's life would have been better if his dad was better. But now Nick has to take care of him, right? Clean up his messes that he's made. Kind of a tragic irony. Things shouldn't have to be that way, but that's how things so often happen. And this is exactly what we see Jesus born into. Jesus should be born into a line of faithful kings in theory. Why should a baby, why should a child have to reckon with all the failures of his fathers and his ancestors 
they all failed. They all failed. And at the time of his birth, the nation of Israel was supercharged. You might remember this, but the nation of Israel was supercharged with messianic fervor. Things were really bad. The Romans had oppressed them. They wanted somebody. They wanted the king in the line of David that was promised so many years ago to come and save them. They needed help. But if you look at this list, the question that we are forced to ask is, what would make this new son of David different than all the other ones? See, if you actually look at the family of David and then of Jesus, the failures of all the previous sons of David cast a dark shadow over all of them, over the whole thing. These kings led Israel to ruin. And what we see here in the second section is not a doctrine of royalty and splendor and all of that. No, we see the doctrine of sin and failure. This is more than just appearances, more than just questions or scandals. What happens when you truly, utterly fail? It hurts people. Nick's dad's failures didn't happen in a vacuum. They hurt his family. They hurt Nick. Sin causes devastation. And Jesus is born into a family whose legacy should have been glory, but instead it was failure. And again, we need to hear this at Christmas time. It's never really a convenient time to talk about sin. And at Christmas, there's this pressure to pretend, at least for the short season, that things are better than they are, happier than they are, less broken than they are. But that's why we need to talk about it. A lot of people, I know it, carry heavy baggage. Some of it because of what you've done, some of it because of what others have done before you. A lot of us have been hurt by the sins of our fathers, so to speak, and a lot of us have hurt others with our sin. And that's the reality of life. We live in a sinful world, and the people that are supposed to help us oftentimes are the ones that harm us the most, not to mention all the things that we have done to hurt others. And some of us here are wondering if there's any hope for us. I think sometimes we look at the world and it feels so hopeless that things haven't ever been this bad. We wonder, can we ever be free of this? Can we ever stop fighting in our marriage? Can we ever be different? What about all the things outside of us that I have no control over? So here's something to take home this Advent. If you read the story of the family and you meditate on it, you know that Jesus was born into something terrible also. Jesus was born into a world of misery and suffering. Jesus was born into a legacy of sin and devastation. Jesus was born facing this uphill battle, all because his family had failed. And this is exactly why he was born. This leads to the third and final point quickly. The four teens. The four teens. Let me save you the trouble. The last section is a bunch of people we don't know anything about. Okay, Zerubbabel, we know a little bit, but really none of these guys have a backstory in the Old Testament. Until we get to Mary and Joseph, really these people could be anybody. No kings, no Old Testament heroes, but it's not so much who these people are that's important. It's more that they exist at all. None of them sat on a throne, but what we see here is the family kept going all the way to the promised child, the Christ. Now look at verse 17. This is what I want to focus on. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And then 
The second table, 14 generations. And the third section, 14 generations. What is Matthew getting at here? Why is he bringing up this number? Well, let me explain. 14 is King David's number. You might be saying, where did that come from? Well, we're separated by a vast distance with where Matthew was at, right? Almost 2,000 years ago and across cultures. It's the ancient Near East, the Middle East. It's far away from where we're at right now. But if you can go back in time and kind of travel to that area, many of Matthew's original readers were Jewish Christians. They were people who had grown up as Israelites, and then they had converted to Christianity. So that meant that they spoke Greek, as most people did in the Roman Empire, but they also knew Hebrew. And in Hebrew, in the Hebrew language, when you count, okay, when you say like one, two, three, and four, what they would do instead of counting with numbers, they would use the letters of the alphabet as numbers, or if some of you are mathematicians, as numerals, okay? So Aleph, the first letter in Hebrew, would be like one. And then Beth, the second letter, would be two, and so on. So in English, right, if we did the same thing, I'd be like A, B, C, D, right? Your kids are lining up in line. It would be A, B, C, D. And you would have a letter that would show your place in the line. That's how counting in Hebrew worked. Now, besides having no numbers, here's another thing about Hebrew that maybe we don't understand. In Hebrew, when they would write it down, they would write down letters without the, con- uh, without the vowels. Okay, so only consonants. The reason they would do this, uh, well, there's a lot of reasons to save space and stuff like that. But the thing about it was they would do it, and you could still read, you just look at the context, right? So, for example, if you're writing my name down, right, in Hebrew, you wouldn't write J-E-S-S-E, you'd write J-S-S. Now, there are some problems with that. If you write Jesus, it's also J-S-S, right? You take out the E and the U. So you'd use context, right? You used your power of deduction. So if you're reading in the Bible and it says that J-S-S saves you from your sins, probably Jesus. If you get an email that says, hey, there's this Zoe event, probably me, right? Like, I don't think Jesus sends emails about Zoe events. So anyway, all this to say, think about the name David. Okay, in Hebrew, there are three letters, Dalit, Vav, uh, Vav and Dalit. So same, kind of similar to uh, our English. We spell it D-A-V-I-D, but in Hebrew there aren't vowels, so it would be D and then a V and a D. Okay, Dalit, Vav, Dalit. Dalit is the fourth letter. Okay, fourth letter. Vav is the sixth letter, and then Dalit again, fourth letter. So for you math whizzes, four plus six plus four is 14. Now you're like, wait a minute, right? You want to, you're going to go back to my office and you're going to see all these like things on the wall and string and stuff. No, I didn't just make this up. There's this thing called gematria. Gematria, it's when you associate a word with its numerical value. Okay. When you associate a word with its number and you get a, you get the number by adding up all of the letters. So the Hebrews would do this for significant words. And David, being one of the most important people in their history, one of the most important people in all the scriptures, was written about a lot. And because of gematria, because of how the Hebrew language and Hebrew mind worked, you'd be reading 464, 14 over and over and over again. David is 14. There's something to this. Now, okay, some people do go crazy with numbers, right? It's like, okay, I was doing some research the other day and I 
multiply three by the square root of 144,000, and I added in the seven days of creation plus 40 days and 40 nights minus 666 because we don't want that in there. And bada bing, bada boom, right? I found out that the end of the world is January 18th, 1973, or something like that. That's how it is sometimes. So I'm not saying just do that for anything. But if you look at the text, Matthew specifically says, look at how it works. 14, 14, 14. 14, 14, 14. He says, look at how the generations break down in this genealogy. So you got to think, how would this communicate to his original readers? It's David's number. Now, I used this illustration when I first preached this passage in Matthew. And let me use it again. Maybe it'll help. Okay, athletes today have numbers on their, jer- on their jerseys. Okay, every athlete has it. But the biggest athletes, the most famous athletes, we know them by their number. Do we not? Or at least we know what number they are. Hundreds of thousands of people wear it. I mean, we even call these people by their numbers. For example, the number 23. If you're into basketball at all, you know that number 23 is who? It's Michael Jordan. Okay, now some of you are thinking other names. And that kind of proves my point. The reason why other people want to wear the number 23 is because of Michael Jordan, one of the greatest basketball players, if not the greatest player who has ever lived. He wore number 23. He made the number 23 famous with his jersey being sold, with Nike shoes, with all of that. And when he retired, it left a huge void in the NBA. And those of you who are into sports, you remember this. When Michael Jordan retired, all anyone could talk about was who is going to be the next Michael Jordan? Who can be a star like this, who can be a worldwide influencer, who can dominate the league like this. And they had this search for the next Michael Jordan. They kept crowning these young, talented people as the next Jordan. And now it's been about two decades. Okay, it's been a while. And the biggest basketball star since Michael Jordan is LeBron James. Now, the thing about LeBron is that no high school player was ever hyped as much as he was. People thought he might be as good or even better than Jordan. There were tremendous expectations, but LeBron didn't shy away from it. In fact, when he first got drafted into the NBA at the ripe old age of 18, guess what number he chose to wear? 23. It wasn't a coincidence. It wasn't random. Part of it was an homage to Jordan. Of course, it was respect, but it also signified that he understood the weight of the expectations placed upon him, the dreams of another star like Jordan. He wasn't afraid to be number 23. Now, listen again to our scripture reading that James read from Isaiah 3. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and who? And David their king. And it shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. There will be many days, many years without a king on the throne of Israel. But then there will come a time when the people will be called back to the Lord and to David, their king. Now you say, isn't David dead? He's been gone for a long time. He's been dead. But as Matthew is reminding us here in the genealogy, in fact, earlier on, he reminded us that David wasn't perfect. He highlighted that. It's not that David is going to return in a chariot of fire to be king again. David 
was ruined by sin, even as the man after God's own heart. That's not the message. Matthew is telling us that this child that is being born into the world is not just any child. He's not just any king, but he is the new David. In a sense, God is starting the kingdom over, just like he did with David. The four teens preach the doctrine of salvation. And let me read the part that we usually read because he's not just the new David, he's the better David. Look at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they, became, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The whole point is that Joseph is the son of David. And some of you are thinking, wait a minute, what's the point of the whole family thing if Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit, if Joseph isn't really the father? Well, something we have to understand here is that, yes, Joseph wasn't the physical or maybe biological father of Jesus, but scripturally speaking, he is the real father of Jesus. In God's eyes, he was chosen to be the father. He's the one given responsibility to name him. There's something powerful to this. There's something powerful to this, especially if you think about something like adoption, when you adopt a child or when we're adopted into God's family. It's real. It's real. Keep that in mind. This is Jesus' real family. And this ties it all together. See, as we said in the beginning, Jesus was born in the light of his family's victories and with the baggage of their failures. And it's mostly their failures, to be honest. And these things were real. These people were real, heroes and kings and who's who's, but also outsiders and failures and nobodies. But what we see here is that Jesus is not ashamed to call them his family because he didn't come to be defined by them. Instead, he came to save them. Because what did the passage say? She will bear a son, and you, Joseph, Son of David, born into this line with all your family history, shall name this child Jesus, which means the Lord is salvation, for he will save his people from their sins. And do you see the hope for us? Because maybe, look, you come from a family that's broken, or maybe you come from a family that doesn't have the best history by reputation or reality, or maybe you're the one who is broken. Maybe you're the one who's messing up. Maybe you're a parent and you have no idea what you're doing. Jesus was born for people like you and for me. He was born into a messed up, scandalous, sinful family to show us just how far the reach of his salvation would go. And to show us that when the Bible says that he was to be the firstborn of a new family, of many brothers and sisters, Romans 8, that any of us, could be a part of it if you come to him. And he will not be ashamed 
no matter what you've done or what people think, he won't be ashamed to call you brother or sister, Hebrews 2.11, if you come to him. See, this old family of Joseph and of Jesus, it preaches to us about the new family, that God is making himself through his son, Jesus Christ. We'll close here. A lot happened with Nick and his dad. In fact, seeing his dad all the time motivated him to clean up his life. Just kind of seeing him. They started talking a lot more. Nick even started to record their conversations. He kind of wanted something to have a keepsake. He was kind of thinking about maybe doing a documentary, kind of about this crazy story that happened. But as time went on, Nick realized his dad wasn't really going to give a whole lot. That ship had sailed. In fact, his dad was, to be perfectly honest, more of a burden than a blessing. But Nick said he was still thankful because, at the very least, he got to have a relationship with him. This man who was chosen by fate, despite all he had done and not done, to be his father. And that's it. Now, we don't believe in fate with a capital F, for we know that God holds everything in his hand. It's not fate, it's God. God chose Nick to be born to that father. And in the same way, God chose Jesus to be born into this family. It's because of God that you and I were born into the families that we were born into. It's because of God that you are here right now. God wanted you to be here. And it's because of God that Jesus was born 2,000 years ago into a family of outsiders and nobodies and failures. Why? Not to be defined by them but to redeem them and to save us. Christmas is a time where anxiety and depression spike. It's a time when people are reminded of all they don't have. It's a time where loneliness and broken families burden so many people. But in this boring genealogy, we see what Jesus has to say about family. And we were reminded that the very reason he came was to start a new one. Not because we bring a lot to the table, in fact, what we bring are our own failures, our own scandals, our own sins. We're not required to be all cleaned up before we go to him, no. Instead, because God is gracious, and because he is someone who saves from sin, we can come to him and be a part of this new family. You can know that you are loved, not because of who you are, but because of who he is. And it could be just as real is the family you were born into. So will you come to him this Christmas? Let's pray. Father, your word preaches so much. And Father, I pray that as we think about Christ, as we think about Christmas time and all that goes along with it, God, I pray that you would help us to really see the blessing that we have to be a part of your family. And we praise you, we thank you for releasing the Christ's name. Amen.